You're listening to the Down the Pub podcast, Canada's premier football show. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome to this episode of the Down the Pub podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am for this one. Uh, this was a huge honour. Uh, we got to chat with an Irish legend and one of my favourite Irish players ever. Uh, he played at a World Cup for Ireland and earned a total of 110 caps. He played in an incredible 66 consecutive competitive games for Ireland. He played club football for Preston, West Brom, Sunderland, Everton, Wigan, Hull, Huddersfield, Derby and finished off his amazing career at Coventry. We are honoured and privileged to have Kevin Kilban on the show. Uh, I'd never thought I'd ever say those words, so I'm super, super, super pumped. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Down the Pub Pod and on Twitter at Down the Pub Pod C1. We'd love to hear from you. Head to downthepub.ca to give us a follow so you never miss an episode. Now, here is Kevin Kilban. So, welcome to this episode of the Down the Pole podcast. Uh, we are joined by Irish football legend and ice skating novice, uh, Kevin Kilban. Uh, welcome to the show, <laughs> my man. How's it going? Everything's great. Everything's great. Yeah, it's a good description. Yeah, <laughs> less the legend, I suppose. Keep the, keep the ice skating novice the more to the point. Yeah, that'll be the one. <laughs> and we're also joined by uh, Chris and Carlos, as always. Welcome back to the show, guys. Cheers, fellas. Oh, no. Cheers. I thought we were going to avoid the whole uh, the whole ice skating thing, but here we are, about ten yeah. seconds. Later. <laughs> yeah, I, I've tried to I've tried to avoid it for the last six months, but I can't get away from it. So there you go. Who knows? Maybe it's gonna he's gonna be in skating with the stars or something. The Canadian version, right? So first question I have for you, Kev, is uh, how are you enjoying life in Canada? Uh, yeah, I'm loving it. I mean, it's been oh, it's been a a crazy eight months since I arrived. I, I arrived in Canada the on the 13th of March. It was literally two days before Toronto Airport closed down. So I, I arrived in from Dublin on the Friday, Friday the 13th. It was probably a sign of things to come, wasn't it, with, the, with, the, with that date? So, um, yeah, everything. I, I mean, it's, we know the way that it's been. Um, it's held up quite a lot of things for me personally. But, you know, I, I'm grateful for what I have over here and I've got to be thankful of that because there's so many people across the world that have had so many, uh, so many troubles and so much, uh, so much heartache, hasn't there? So I'm, uh, yeah, in answer to your question, I'm loving it, but it was, it was a weird time to, to get it, to get over here. Yeah. Hashtag super spreader. It's all you, man. We were great until you came. So, <laughs> so um, just I know you were kind of. I know I saw you on Twitter there. You were quite uh, vocal about the penalty that Tottenham got against Brighton on the weekend. Um, oh yeah. Obviously, there was also the uh, the free uh, the free kick that should have been given to Tottenham for the, the Brighton goal. Ian Wright was calling for the ref to be suspended rather yeah. than sending them <clears throat> down to the lower leagues. Do you think that's a thing that they should be doing? Like it's like when referees have an awful game like that, or do you think that? Well, do you know with, with that? I I I think that decision, certainly the Harry Kane penalty that was given. I think that there's still a lot of people that that will be split on it. Some a lot of you know you'll obviously speak to biased Tottenham supporters and things like that. Would 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 always say no clear penalty, you know. That is, you know, that's that's a, a professional footballer's foul. You know exactly what you're doing. You, you, you're looking at the guy, waiting for him to jump or waiting for him. Because you could see Lallana, what he was doing. Lallana's going for the ball. You know as well with, with it that you're endangering an, uh, an opponent. You are putting his, his, um, uh, him at risk of injury with, it, with, that, with that type of foul as well. And I honestly don't think referees um, would know that. Referees, when the, when the referee in the game, they're trying to, obviously, there's a lot to take in when you're refereeing the game and a lot of players are mouthing off and things like this as the game's going ahead. But I don't think referees would actually see that because how VAR hasn't overturned that, clearly, if you look at it, as if someone sat in there in the know would know clearly that that is a, a 100% foul lose. It's not even a doubt. Honestly, God, it's not even a doubt. It's, it's, a, it's a foul. Kane knows what he's doing and he bought a penalty. And, you, you think clever play, and that's that's the sort of terms I've heard mentioning around this. But um, it's a foul, and that sh that should never ever have ever been given a penalty. And as I said, that's it's endangering Lallana because you can see the way that he falls. He's falling from such a height when he's just going clearly looking at the ball to go and, to go and head it. And uh, 
Kane's bought his uh, bought his team a, a penalty with that one. I didn't I didn't see what Ian Wright had said actually. I think it's quite harsh sometimes when you when you call for referees to be suspended. But that type of foul has been going on for years. But uh, you know maybe the position that I played over the years as well. You know on on, on kickouts when you'd be trying to challenge for kickouts and you get fullbacks that would stop you on your run, obstruct you before you can even before you can even get anywhere near the ball. And referees don't see it. Referees don't understand maybe that that sort of intricate or clever foul from um, from a fullback or from a defender during a game. And I think that was something that Kane bought there. So you say fair play to him, it got top on the points in the end. Um, but that is a sort of foul that referees should instantly see. And I think if you've got somebody in the know that's on the panel there with the VAR, I think they would see that clearly too. So, so I guess Wrighty was more freaking out about the, the Brighton goal because, um, because he said that the referee went over and looked at it and still gave the goal. And I think that's yeah. where they were like really, really angry. Like, I mean, like if you look at the, the, the foul in Heiberg, it was, I mean, anybody yeah. would have given that as a foul. Yeah. Do you know what though? I, I think I, I've, maybe I was in favour of it last season as well, clearly saying, look, a referee should go over and view the monitor. Remember last year when referees weren't even going and viewing the monitor, which is crazy in itself. But, but I can imagine a referee, you know, when you're in that moment, I, I think he probably start to doubt himself. Has he seen it right? Does he want to really, does he really want to overturn a decision that he gave when he thinking I'm in that moment, I'm on the spot. That's, that's the decision that I gave and I've got to go with that. I think that's what's maybe in a referee's mindset at times when, They've almost got to maybe just let the, the moment settle for themselves, view it as if they were they're in a different place, that they've not made that decision. And I think they would probably come to a different conclusion. So I think referees and the education around referees probably has to maybe change their mindset. That's the way that I think it, it, it is at the moment. Because I think the way that we saw last season, it was almost in defiance at times. It was like, no, it's then against us. They're coming against us for decisions. When we're all watching the game at times thinking, it's crazy. You're not viewing it. You're not actually taking that step back out. VAR is getting so many things wrong. So I think by going over and viewing it, it's the correct decision. But sometimes I just think maybe the heart race is going a bit too much and they're in that moment and it's difficult for them to overturn it. So there's maybe still a number of things that VAR has to improve on, but I do feel we are in the right direction. I, I wouldn't want to be too critical of referees constantly because in that moment, I think it's a difficult one for them uh, to overturn. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I guess like with, with Formula One, they, they all, like the stewards are ex-drivers so it kind of would make sense I guess to have on the panel like an yeah, ex yeah I, I mean I'm not I, I think sometimes it's it's easy to say look you need ex-players on that panel it's not it's not even players that's played at a high level it's it's players that's played at any level players whether you're playing Sunday league football sometimes or whether you're playing you know whether you're playing lower league non-league football over in England or however it would be uh, amateur standard you, you know what you're doing on a football pitch. Referees in general have been geared towards refereeing from the, from the age of nine and 10 years of age because you've got to go through a system. It takes such a long time to get to a certain level of refereeing at Premier League standards. So that's my problem with it at the moment. They know the laws of the game, the spot on on every little thing that goes. If you, you could ask them any minor detail on the laws of the game and, and sometimes what a foul and what isn't, but it, it's, the, it's the things that I think referees miss and that type of thing. So Certainly, with in my mind, what the Kane incident would be more than anything. I some, I know sometimes it's you look at things. The lads are going in for fifty-fifty. There's a high leg. We've all been there. We've all done that type of thing. And sometimes you can't help yourself when you're playing. You you, you look back at, at some at some this, uh, some incident when when I was playing certainly, and I, and I think God, how the hell have I done that? Why have I led with an elbow? But you're not meaning to do it. But it's just you you're going with an innocent challenge. You're challenging honestly for the ball. And sometimes referees, I don't feel as though that they honestly get themselves in a player's mindset and they don't and there's not as much I mean I go back what 20 years that I was that I was playing professional football I didn't have too many discussions away from the football field with referees i.e. them coming into the dressing room and talking to us about decisions that's being made and having an open discussion that then that, it can be a two-way thing that sort of thing doesn't happen and I think there's got to be a lot more of that just before I pass to Carlos, sorry. Um, obviously, last night United had an awful, an awful time of it again. Um, yeah. There's talk today again about uh, Ollie maybe getting um, the bullet. So, what do you, what do you think? Do you think he's in in jeopardy? And what do you think he, he needs to change with the team? Well, I think there's been a lot wrong at United now. What we're going back since Ferguson, aren't we? we know that um, the, the the buying big and the 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 the, the whole. 
um, the whole decision making within the club seems to be wrong. How how they've gone about it, they've you know as I said, buying big big wages. It's not always the way to do it, and we know that. If you look at the history of football, if you even look at the way that Ferguson did things, yes, he did spend big at times, but it wasn't always about paying huge wages and huge salaries for players. It, it was maybe about a manager having control of a, of, a, of a team and the team almost playing for him and playing for, for, for each other. I don't think they've had that at United for a long time. So it, it's going to take a long time to reverse the way things have been going for them over the last six or seven years, eight years, whatever it was since, since Ferguson's gone, because that's, that's the, been the policy of the club. So I, I feel sorry for him, just as I felt sorry for, for Moyes, Mourinho and, and Van Hall. Highly paid, yes, but they're on a hiding to nothing because... It's the, the clearly falling behind year upon year with what's been set in the club, with, with the, the way that they're going about the business. I'm, I'm talking about the way that the, the, the recruitment's going about, the way that the, the, the team's being coached. Everything is different from the top four, the top six teams, from City, from Liverpool, from Tottenham, from all the top clubs that surround them. They're doing things differently and they seem to have fallen behind. That's why I feel it's going to be quite a while before they get back to the level. So... Is it, is it going to be get rid of Ollie and then somebody else comes in? If that were to be the case, they need a whole change on the whole coaching structure, the whole recruitment structure. Everything's got to be changed with the club. And that's why I think it might take six or seven years. I, someone said about a year after Ferguson had gone, we may see Man United being like Liverpool from the, early, from the late 80s, early 90s, when they went so long. And I think so many people laughed at that. But uh, no, you, I'm, you, I'm a United supporter, Kevin, and it was my biggest fear. Like, here we yeah, are. I, yeah, I mean, but I, don't, I, I think if you're looking at it when Fer, the year Ferguson retired, I don't think any of us thought, look, it's going to be 20 years until they win another Premier League title. I didn't think it'd be that long. But now you're starting to realise that how far they are falling behind year upon year. They've got an awful lot of quality. We can clearly see that. They've got, they've got exceptional footballers within the side, but it, it seems that buying an individ, the, the, the policy is individuals rather than having a team plan that's going to be 20, keeping 25 players happy within the structure of the club. And that's where United have always been, yet they've gone away from that. That's why they're falling behind and it's going to be a long road until they get back to the rest of the big clubs in England, let alone the, the big clubs in Europe. Yeah, somebody did say like that. It's almost like somebody comes available, they just try and buy them. It, they, yeah, they need them or not. It's kind of it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, Carlos, far away there, man. Uh, this is back to the VAR question, um, Kevin. That we were talking um, earlier. Um, one of the first questions that Anthony mentioned it. Um, do you? And this is more like a personal question for you. Um, in terms of VAR, do you think that it should be a policy to follow? Because I notice, like I'm from South America, and the bar that that the, the way that they use it is terrible, yeah. um, especially now in, in the South American qualifiers. Um, they were like a, a, like a couple penalties that they weren't a penalty. Yeah. Um, it, it was like massively proof. But the thing is, uh, when th what they're doing now is they're posting what the VAR refs in the rooms with the computers are saying and putting the yeah. audits just to kind of like cover the controversy of what it's talking about, which could be doing in, in, in pre-production or post-production, you know what I mean? But my question to you is, do you think that it should be a rule in terms of how many camera angles should the referee check? Because I noticed that when they go to the machine and they check it, okay, just they give in a couple shots, but they don't get sometimes like the camera that is in front of the player mm. because it's clearly the most accurate one that you want to see. And I don't know if yeah. it's controversial or not, but I want to see what's your take on that. Yeah, no, it's a great point that, that sometimes when you're seeing the angles that a referee is going to view, it's different from the angles that we're seeing at home as well. We, I think, for, I think for the sake of the game, we've all got to be on the same page, whether that's the viewer on TV, whether it's the supporter in the stadium, the player, and, and, the, and the referee themselves or the officials. We've all got to be on the same page because clearly we'll all have our decisions or we'll all have our, our mindset on what is a right and a wrong decision. But sometimes it, it, it's too clear. It's too clear for a referee to, to, to go against what we're all seeing. And that's where these outcries come about, where... As I've said before, I think it's more in defiance from the referee. It's, I think, I'm sure that they have these meetings where, where they, they'll speak about players in, in general and they'll go, look, no, 
it's them against us or it, it's them. They have their way of thinking. We have our way of thinking rather than just, just it's, sometimes it's not hard just to come together, have that, have that discussion. Some of the best referees that I would have had. And honestly, some of them would have been considered arrogant when I would have played like someone like Graham Pohl, um, Mark Clattenburg, some of the referees. Honestly, they used to talk to you and they'd have a laugh with you on the pitch as well. The, some of the decisions that they made were ridiculous and some of the things that they did on a pitch were ridiculous, but they would honestly talk to you. And I, what I found towards the back end of my career, I, I found that referees were not having these discussions with you anymore. The, the personal side of it was actually going away from it. So it was almost becoming a broken thing 10 years ago. And I think that's the state that we're in now that any sort of player that, that, that says anything wrong to a referee, a referee would just give them a yellow card rather than just have that little bit of free, free talk between the two of them. It's, it just seems it's blown up into nothing at times. And that's where I, that's where I think, but to, to your point, what you're saying there, I, I totally agree. Sometimes it doesn't seem we're all on the same page with the angles that we're seeing. And, and I think, I think we make it difficult for referees rather than make it easy with the, with the VAR decisions that have been made, been, been, uh, been made rather as I was saying as well, sorry, that, if you give them, if you give a, a clear angle that we can all see, and, he, and we all on the same page, you see that's a clear decision. Get that made, or that that needs to be made. Someone's in the rear talking to the referee. We all know what's happening. Then, just one point what you made there about w- that you're hearing what the VAR officials are saying to the referee. I wouldn't be in favour of that simply because mm-hmm. I think that that leads to embarrassment. It leads to it leads to so much scrutiny. We can see the pictures with the VAR decision. I don't think you need the words to go with that. And that's, that's how I'd feel personally on that one anyway. I certainly don't want to see Mike's, referees mic'd up. I don't want to see that. I don't, I don't think there's a necess- uh, it's necessary. I really don't think that personally. Definitely. But that is how it's been doing in Ball in South America. That's how they're doing because yeah. there were so many say, penalties that were called. I'm, I'm not... I, and uh, you know you, you're asking me but mm-hmm. I, I, I've not watched too much South American club football mm-hmm. for a long time I watch over the years I would have watched bits of the Copa Libertadores the you know the mm-hmm. South American Championship so you know I, I don't know how it's done um, mm-hmm. but I'd be interested to maybe have a little look now actually and see how they are doing it I'll be able to get a few clips of that just to see what's see, see how it's going about yeah and this leads to my second question in regards to the ER to just like to cut it off just the topic in terms of um do you think like now, now there's referees before um, it used to be controversial about the eye of the referee. Then the AR came up and said like, okay, it's going to be a huge uh, tool for the referee because the, the, the referee is the one that makes a call and then he relies on the VAR. Yeah. However, um, do you think the VAR now it's killing the war of refereeing in terms of not calling the right calls, just the way of how cards are booked. I feel like now the refs are giving, as you mentioned it, uh, before more yellows and red than they used to be. Obviously, yeah. when when it's a red and it's a big chop, yes, of yeah. course it's a straight red. But I feel like now the there's like so many unnecessary yellows yeah. in, in in the modern game. I totally agree. Honestly, I totally agree, right? And, I, and and honestly, I don't know if anyone watched the Everton game at the weekend. I watched Everton at the weekend, right? And um, the Corey was booked. Uh, I can't remember. It was mm-hmm. quite late on in the game, I think. And all it was was. Uh, the Newcastle player run across Decorey. That's all he did. He run across him. Decorey had absolutely no chance of getting out of the way, but he was booked for it. And these sort of yellow cards now, in my in my eyes, are thinking. It wasn't well, a yellow for me. It's not. It's not a yellow card though. It yeah. isn't. It, it, it's an unintentional foul. It's a foul. Yes, but it's just a, a foul and get on with the game. But mm-hmm. every every foul now, if a player goes to ground, if a player runs across an opponent, if a player obstructs an opponent, the yellow cards. Now, if the clear and blatant, yes, they should be yellow cards. I, I get that. If, the, if they're endangering an opponent, yes, clear, a clear yellow card. But every decision, even, even on penalties with goalkeepers coming off the line, how can you book a goalkeeper for coming off the line on a penalty? He wants to, he's making himself as big as possible. Mm-hmm. The advantage is always with the striker of the ball. Is it, what, 75 80% chance of scoring a goal from a penalty? The goalkeeper has got a small chance of saving it, yet if he steps one inch off his line, he's getting booked for it. It's, it's a joke because that sort of thing, it's... It's so hard for a goalkeeper to prevent from doing it, Tank, because his instinct is to dive forward and, and make the save. So mm-hmm. these are the sort of things where it's booking for booking's sake now. And mm-hmm. I personally think it's making the game worse for that because it's leading to, obviously, as you say, more red cards for two silly yellow card decisions that I think, I think one of them or maybe both of them could be preventable. Definitely, definitely. I, I definitely agree with those points. Thank you very much for giving us your take on that. Go for it, Chris. No bothers.
Well, since we're talking about laws of the game, I know you've been outspoken in the past about the control that like agents have on the game. It's uh, it's it's yeah. more or less flipped now. Teams don't have any control. It's it's the players and their agents are just kind of, uh, I guess you could say, pulling the puppet strings, if you will. How do you figure FIFA or I guess more specifically UEFA, because that's where most of the issues are, tackle this mm. issue going forward now that money is going to be such a big deal in the game over the next couple of years with COVID? Mm. Yeah, well, the legislation on agents, um, it, it changed a few years. It's changed a few times probably in the last 20 years, maybe since I started playing as well. At, at one time, it's fully licensed agents. Then it, then they, they got away from that UEFA and, and FIFA came away from that sort of policy that basically you or I could just basically take a player in and be their agent. And it seems crazy to me that, that you can have this because you know that at, at times there's only one one person in mind of the agent and it's not necessarily it's it's, it's really the player some of some of the bigger agents um i think that the problem always came from i mean i don't know you maybe some of you guys may know where i came from in my career i started in the very in the very lower tier of english football and what what i was finding when i first went into football it was a long time ago now 1993 there were there were players that refused to sign a contract for for a certain club at lower levels and even at the top level in, in, in those times. And a club could freeze them, could fr freeze them out of anything. They'd literally they'd make them train with the, with the youth team. They'd be having to train till five and six in the evening. They weren't allowed home to see the family and they were treated terribly. And it was just, it was just, it was a joke the way that it was where players had no control over it whatsoever. Then of course the Bosman ruling came in where it went, it's only gone one way since then. Since the Bosman ruling came in, it, it's gone one way, and it's probably it has probably gone too much now. It's gone too far. Where clubs now uh, talk about and and have always spoken about loyalty. Cl clubs are not loyal to players. I think everybody accepts that. Supporters scream for it. And um, when you're a young boy, when you're coming into a team, your intentions are to play football, do the best you can, earn your contracts. But you, as, as you progress through your career, you do become more cynical. You see the way that, play, that players are treated by certain clubs. And I think this is where we've got to now. It's a standoff now where agents have capitalised on that massively because of how ill-treated players were prior to the Bosman ruling. And now it's too much power. And I, I think you're spot on what you're saying. We're seeing, you know, over the next few years, with the amount of money that's gone into agents' fees that's been taken out of the game, and we're seeing so many clubs now under the Premier League going under year upon year, um, or, the, or potentially, sorry, going under, but year upon year, that potential has been there now. Certainly in the last 10 years, it seems to be more and more. Um, it, money's going out of the game when it should be staying within the game, whether that's at the professional level or certainly filtering down to grassroots level as well. Too much money is leaving the game on on agents' fees. And I think I think it's going to be difficult again for FIFA, UEFA, whoever it would be that's going to that's going to be legislating these um these uh, these policies. But there has to be something done that's going to get a hold of, of of agents and get hold of the power that they've got within the game because they're literally running football clubs now. They're running the uh, they're running transfer policies of certain football clubs, and we know within that it's it it, it leads to problems with finances, i.e., money leaving the game. Some of it has over the years. I'm not saying it all the time with certain agents. It has left the fee, uh, left the um, left the game illegally, and that this is the problem that it can lead to this illegal movement of money because of uh, because of unregistered and un unlegislated agents uh, fantastic answer well I, I guess moving on to your career you were just talking about how you started uh in the lower ranks if you will and, and you're yeah. a preston boy you started with preston north end and over the last few years they've been able to uh, accumulate and acquire a fantastic squad what do you think that trevor hemmings has to do to get the guys into the premier league and do you think that if they kind of rush if you will that it, they could end up back in a in a worse situation than they were in a few years ago well you know i think most clubs that have gone up over the last few years i think they've done it right um uh, if you look at someone like you know if i'm looking at someone on a very similar size to preston preston and burnley would be almost identical in stature and everything but what burnley did and i spoke to a lot of people around burnley burnley football club when they first got promoted was look if we go up we're going to go down, which they did in the first season, if anyone remembered. And we're going we're gonna to try to stabilise the club over five years. Initially, it was five years. If we get back up in our first season, great. 
And Burnley, of course, have gone on. They've built a new training ground. They've they've got a legacy now from being in the Premier League for that for that one season that, that, that they were in there. They did it wrong the first time 10, 15 years ago when they first got to the Premier League, but they certainly did it differently. So there's a lot of clubs that have got promoted and done it right. And Preston, if, if they were to get up now, I think it's going to be difficult, really, really difficult, because of the clubs that get relegated, have the, have the parachute payments, their budgets are way and above a club like Preston, because Preston have never been into the Premier League to get, the, to get the, any sort of money financially from the parachute payments. So I think they've done it well. Honestly, I do. I know Trevor. I've known Trevor my, virtually my whole, my whole life, essentially. He used to watch me playing on Trevor Hemmings. That is. He used to watch me playing on the park pitches in Preston when I was seven, eight, and nine years of age. So he's known me a long time. I've got a lot of respect for him. He, he, all, all chairmen and all owners of football clubs are going to take a lot of stick and a lot of, a lot of abuse. But his heart's in the right place. He does everything with the best intention for Preston North End but it's it, it's going it's getting more difficult year upon year they've got the right manager in place and I think the best that Preston could hope for at the moment with the budget they've got is staying up in the championship there may be someone that comes in with with uh, finances to take the club forward and take it off off uh, Mr Hemmings's hands in the next few years but it's it's going to be very difficult for a club like Preston to get promoted because you you'll need to look at Sheffield Wednesday, who are a huge club in the Championship and where they've been. Leeds United, who have managed to get back. There's some huge clubs that are not in the Premier League now that, that are teetering every single year on going into administration of Sheffield Wednesday and all these other clubs have all been there. So it's so difficult, I think. And Preston are competing in, in a market where really they shouldn't be competing because of the finances dictate otherwise. So talk about the club coming up. Uh, it's where you started your career. I'm guessing is where yeah. you got your education or were you at a club before you were at Preston? No, no, I, I grew up. I mean, my background is saying I'm, I'm from, uh, I, first of all, I would always see myself as Irish first and foremost. That's how I was as, as a kid. Uh, both parents, Irish, um, moved, moved to England, you know, so we've, we're very much, we were very much a very poor Irish family growing up. Uh, my brother and I grew up playing street football. That's how we grew up playing with, I played with older kids. My brother's a, a couple of years older than me and he was an excellent footballer in himself. So I, I learned everything probably from him growing up and, and the, the, the people that were around me from playing street football as a kid. So I went straight into, I, I, well, you weren't in those days, you couldn't sign for a team until you were 14 at schoolboy level. But I was associated with Preston from when I was 10 years of age. I was playing three or four years above my age group for a while. I was playing the 12 football at Preston when I was 10. So I was lucky that I was playing for a good club at the time and, you know, managed to progress. And as I said, signed schoolboy forms at 14. And then uh, at the time it was called a YTS scheme, apprenticeships now and things like that at 16 and then professional at 18. So my progression was, 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 was steady and it was, it was, it was great to be at a club like Preston and work my way through the system. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how, how it was. I said, I grew up a Celtic fan, actually. I, my dream was to play for Celtic. That, that's the club I wanted to play for. Okay, okay. Uh, and I grew up wanting to, well, my dream ultimately was always to play for Ireland. That was the number one dream for both my brother and I when we were kids. Um, but Celtic was my team. Yeah, Celtic was my club. Um, and I had a couple of opportunities to go during my playing days. But anyway, it never quite happened in the end. But uh, yeah, but that was it really, yeah. Cheers. Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that um, you uh, you had a chance to go to Celtic. That would have been awesome. Um, so, so uh, yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> might be had. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, just speak just, just speak about Ireland. Like, uh, they got you have 110 caps or something. That's crazy. Um, obviously, Stephen Kenny's come in um, as Irish manager. How do you feel things are going? And do you, do you see it? He has a plan of where he wants to get us. Yeah, I, he certainly has a plan. Um, there, there has been a bit of negativity around the performances in the last few games since he's taken over. I've been quite happy with, with the way that it's gone. It was always going to be difficult for his first four or five games, simply because he was thrown in the deep end. It, you know, we had, we had those big that big playoff game straight away, and he had a couple of the Nations League games to prepare for it. Um, so, although we're not scoring goals. We are. We we. Ha I feel as though we've been creating chances. I feel as though we've been. You know, if you look at the Slovakia game, I felt we should have won that game across ninety minutes. We certainly should have won it against uh, across one hundred and twenty minutes. And to lose on penalties was was heartbreaking when I was watching the match. So I felt there was a lot of positives in that game. I really did think that. But a lot of the other games has been 
there's been times when you're watching it, I, I honestly, and I'd feel as though that the ball could be moved forward a little bit quicker. I'm not saying lump it from back to front, but I'm saying pass forward along the ground a lot quicker. If you look at the best sides around at the moment, they're passing forward quickly. And that's, that's the way that I'd, I'd feel as though that that can be improved. But there's been a lot of improvement in performances. I really do think that. But goals have been a, a problem for us for 15, 20 years. It, it's not a new thing. Stephen Kenny's now coming. We're all getting to the fact uh, to the stage now where we know full well what we need. Defensively, we've we've been quite sound. We have been sound prior to Stephen Kenny taking over. But I do feel there's a plan in place. I do I do genuinely feel that. I think Stephen Kenny has got the players behind him. He's got the belief of everybody around him. There's still a few doubters. Don't get me wrong, supporters wise, but. I do feel that he, he will get it right. And I think long-term, if we're looking at certain managers that have taken jobs who have had a, a tough start, you, you'll need to look no further than, than all our managers. Jack Charlton had, had an awful start. Mick McCarthy had an awful start. And if we're looking closer to home as well, M Michael O'Neill, who did a great job with Northern Ireland, had an awful start, struggled really badly for his first 10 games. So I think we're playing better than... All those names I've mentioned there, and they all went on to have good to have good careers at international level. So I feel as though Stephen Kenny's got the team in a decent place, and I think he'll be quite happy going forward uh, for, for what's to come. Yeah. So, so you mentioned there about um, the, the lack of a scoring threat. It's as you said, it's been since Robbie Keane pretty much was kind of getting older. We've never really had anybody else to fill the void. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, like obviously with all the stuff happening with the FAI with John Delaney taking? all the money that he wants and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Do you think that there was a lack of money going into the underage system to help develop these players that we need for the next generation? Um, do you know what? I think it, I, I do feel it was always going to, it was always difficult to produce players. We, we know where we are that I, the problem was there were so many of, we, we, it, or so many of our players since I can remember going back to even before I was born and before, you know, before you and I were born, the, the, the mark or the, the level of an Irish player has always been, you grow up in Ireland, you go to England as quickly as possible. We've never seriously gone and thought we need to develop our talent domestically now. We've got to start producing players that might be playing at 16 and 17 in the League of Ireland that are playing men's football. So when they get to 2021, they might, that might not necessarily be of a technical level compared to some of the Premier League players, but they have got the advantage of playing men's football, competitive football for a lot longer than the players of, the, of their age. And that's where I feel that we're, we're maybe getting to that level now. Certainly Stephen Kenny will try to push for that. If you're looking about the infrastructure of some of the players, you know, realistically, we've got Aaron Conley, we've got Adam Ida, we've got... Uh, G um, uh, we've got Malumbi. We've got we've got several players now that have come through the system. Uh, Troy Parrott be another one as well. We're looking to him to see how he progresses as well in the next few years. We've got we've got players that maybe if you're looking back over the last twenty years are not at that level or at f for their age. So we've not we've done something okay. We have done something okay. Personally, I don't think that's been down. I don't think that's solely been down to what the FAI have done at underage level. Simply because. If you look across our history, we've always produced players. We, we, we always were producing players. It's just the opportunity for our Irish players now, over in England especially, is becoming limited because there's less chance for the English players, there's less chance for Scottish players, for Welsh players. So in turn, we're, we're going to be falling down the pecking order as well. So that is why I think it's a must that we start to try to produce our players to get them level for the League of Ireland, get them ready, sorry, for the League of Ireland level, get, get the heads right on that. Don't go to England too early. Stay in Ireland for maybe a year or two extra. Play some football. Help develop yourself personally, like, you know, maybe with maybe your education. And I think you'll be a more rounded individual when, you, when and if the chance comes to England, when you maybe to go to England, when you're 19 and 20. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, like, that's how Roy Keane did it pretty much. He was at Cove and all that kind of stuff. He yeah. played men's football before he headed over. Um, so just, just for yourself, um, when you hung up your boots, uh, you went off to university and got your, your media degree and all that kind of stuff. Was that always the plan? Or I know you did some of your, your way for licenses. Did, did yeah. you plan to get into coaching like Duffer and Robbie Keane? No. Uh, coaching... Yeah, well, I was coaching at Hull. I had the reserves at Hull uh, for a year as well, which I really enjoyed. I actually did love it when I was coaching there. But, the, you know, circumstances in my life changed as well. So I had to think about things a little bit differently. I didn't think I was going to go into media. I didn't think I was going to coaching. Honestly, I think it's, what I wanted to do initially when I finished was, look, I need to take a bit of time out. I want to take a, a year out. I want to just maybe just maybe live a little as well, start to go and travel a little bit and start to see different things. And 
I didn't get the opportunity to do that. And that was the thing that I kind of fell into media after, well, long story short, I had a bad back injury that was, that was maybe hindering me for a few years before the end of my career. The last year I had a serious operation on my back. So I then took whole city's reserve team for a season, as I was saying before, when I got myself fit, I got offered a playing contract at Coventry, which I never should have taken. But I, I, I thought, yeah, I was still fit enough to, you know, I could outrun anyone if you're going to give me any sort of running on a, on a training ground. But, my legs weren't physically up to the demands of playing a game. I, I, I felt as though I'd lost all the power in my legs. My pace had certainly gone at that stage as well. So I should never have taken the contract, but I felt as though that I was fit enough to do so. And maybe one or two of the tests that I was doing pre-season suggested that I was right to take it. But I knew full well after about six or seven games that I wasn't right to continue. So when I retired then... I was in a different position and I decided to take a few um, of the, the media roles that I was offered and I really enjoyed it. So I went from there really. I, mo I moved back to Ireland then in 2016 and, and I lived there for four years before moving here to Canada. So yeah, it was, it was very different for me, but I didn't really have any sort of, of, of mindset that I'm going to do this or that, but I just kind of fell into it, I suppose, and it happened for me. Amazing. Uh, far away there, Carlos. Yeah. Um... Since we're talking about careers in football, I want to nerd out a little bit and talk to you about the World Cup and Korea-Japan 2002. Um, you were in the, in the group phase with uh, Saudi Arabia and Germany. Yeah. Uh, and, and, Cam and then Cameroon, Cameroon too. Uh, yeah. First of all, Cameroon, how was facing uh, Samuel Eto'o? <laughs> It was just Samuel like Eto a real... yeah. Yeah, well, he was, he, you know, at the time, he wasn't as obviously a bigger superstar as he went on to become a few years later. Mm -hmm. uh, they had some, uh, Mbama was one of the best players. They had Jeremy playing in that Cameroon side. Cameroon were, 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 were sorry, African champions. So Cameroon mm -hmm. came in as certainly the favourites from Africa. They were probably amongst the top 10 favorites then so they were feared by a lot uh, by a lot of sides and they were our, they were our opening team um in that world cup and we were probably a little bit I, i know for a fact i was extremely nervous you know I, i was saying before all i wanted to do was play for ireland but play for ireland in a world cup was the ultimate dream that's that's all i wanted to do as a boy mm -hmm. after watching italian 90 when i was 13 all I wanted to do was play for Ireland in a World Cup. Seeing the Irish team there with the supporters, that's, that was it. That was the ultimate for me. So I remember the first game, standing for the anthem, the build-up to the game, really, I mean, incredibly nervous. I, I, I really got nervous after the age of 20, but mm -hmm. for that first World Cup game, as you probably can imagine, if you, if I, even if yeah. I take myself out of it, of the situation that I was in, I, I, you, you, it's understandable, you're going to feel nervous. So I, I certainly was. And I think a lot of the team felt that way. And we didn't play well first half. Cameroon went a goal up. And then second half, or at half time, sorry, we went in. Mick McCarthy just said to us, look, just lads, you're better than this, of course. Just show what you, what you were showing for the last two years when we played against the, the, the Dutch and we played against the Portuguese. Just relax and, and mm -hmm. show, show them what you can. And second half, we played well. We got a draw out of the game. Then we, then we got another draw out of the Germany game, which was our second match. And we beat the Saudis. And so we, we, had a, we never felt inferior. You know, that was a thing mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, we, we outplayed Germany for probably 70 minutes of, of, the, of the game that we played against them. And so... We, we were then on course if we were going to meet Germany again it would have been a semi-final and you know believe it or not we were thinking that way we, we should have beat Spain when we went out on penalties in, in that World Cup we were the better team again from probably 20-25 minutes onwards we, we should have won that match so I think you look back on my career you look back and then look back on you, you, any career you'll, you'll have I should have done this I should have done that and that was the one regret maybe losing that Spain game because we had a great chance to get to a World Cup semi-final or even a final in, in that World Cup because it was so open and we had a great we had yeah. a brilliant side that should have taken us there as well but playing in that World Cup is, is the ultimate in my, in my mind playing the World Cup it's, it's the ultimate for any player that's how I felt as a kid growing up I fell in love with Diego Maradona from Mexico 86 when I was eight or nine That was, that was it. That's all I wanted to do then from, from that moment then was playing World Cups. And fortunately, I, I got the opportunity to play in one. And you face, uh, in the World Cup, in the group phase, you face pretty much the, uh, the Germany of Balak, Oliver Kahn, Miroslav Klose. Those will end up in the final against Brazil. And also, yeah. I remember, if I'm not mistaken, in that match, you guys uh, lost in penalties, as you were mentioning also with uh, against Spain. That was the Spain yeah. of Raul, Hierro, 
uh, Luis Enrique, like really good players. And yeah. uh, Casillas was debuting in, in the Nets in, in Spain. Yeah. And also, if I'm not mistaken, that game, they, they lost against uh, Korea. Uh, Korea. They were eliminated. Right, yeah. They went to yeah. penalties, I think. Or spawn, yeah, yeah, it, it was like that. So you guys kind of like had like a 50-50 chance in the World Cup. You know, no, no, yeah. nobody knows that. And you guys did a great campaign. Um, moving forward a little bit uh, after the World Cup, just want to ask you, how is uh, playing against my top number nine striker of all time, Ronaldo? You faced Ronaldo in 2004, Ronaldinho. Yeah. Said Roberto, yeah, yeah, uh, Roberto Carlos. That was to me like one of the top Brazil since uh, since I was born, you know, because I'm not that old to see Pele play, but mm. like after that, like Ronaldo, it's it's kind of like to me the best nine I ever seen. I, I'd agree. Ronaldo's yeah. probably the best nine I've seen in my lifetime. Ronaldo's the best nine I think, absolutely is, um, because. Of you know his pace and his power. Obviously, he had injuries that that hindered him through the the latter part of his career. But to see to see that team come to Dublin, yeah, it was very special to play to play that team. Ronaldinho, as you say, I mean, you know, you look back on your career, you played against some superstars. I was fortunate. I'm been fortunate to play against Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously Ronaldo. Zidane, you know, Henri. You, you name. You go through all the plays, and it, it was it was you know you look back. And you think you played against some of the, of the greats of the game, but that team coming to Dublin, yes, it was it was a great night. It was a, it was a special night with with as you say, Ronaldinho, and who I would totally agree as saying the best number nine that that I saw but through my lifetime. I, yeah, as you say, I never saw Pele, I never saw some of the, but mm. but Ronaldo was special. He was so so special. I used to love watching him play. Yeah. And one last one, um, I'm asking you, like, you were a former player, like, brilliant for, for Ireland, and um, they always said that the first match in the World Cup is the most important one because it's yeah. how you set up through your group stage. You have to either win it or you either uh, had a draw. You guys had a 1-1 one, uh, one, one, uh, against Cameroon. Are uh, you think that, that that kind of, like, mentally helped you guys yeah. to move towards the next match against Germany, because yeah. uh, Germany was the, the the second in the in that World Cup. Like it's yeah. it's not it's, it's it was just a great team, you know. Yeah, they're spot on. It's exactly right. I think I think our mindset coming into the game as well, mm -hmm. rather than think right, we're going to go and win in this Cameroon game. It was a little bit of mm -hmm. don't lose this game. I think I think that maybe crept into our mindset that hindered us, as I was saying before, in that first half because mm -hmm. we went out with a mentality of look, if we get something from the game, we've got a great chance of qualifying. And we were very poor in the first half. I don't think Cameroon were even great in the first half themselves, mm -hmm. but they were better than us, largely down to how we played. Second half, we just felt a little bit more relaxed and were able to play a little bit. So yeah, it's it's definitely the mindset of that first game at a World Cup. Certainly for the for the minor teams, which we were considered a minor team then going into that World Cup was do not lose your first game. Give yourself a chance, and and uh, yeah, if you do that, you 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 do have a better chance, of course, in the last two games. Because even if you lose the second game, you still have that point to fall back on. And mm -hmm. if you obviously if you lose the the first two, you're more or less gone. But you can then play for that four points, giving yourself a chance. If you've if you've drawn or or certainly not lost or won or drawn that first game, yeah, you give yourself a much better chance. Absolutely, definitely, definitely. Go for it, Chris. Yeah. Well, you were just. Uh... I don't, I don't know what the words name drop in there, all the, all the greats that you played against. But um, yeah. as, as a Manchester United guy, obviously these are dark times, but you played against the club during, I guess, really the last dark period of the team, that transitionary time where Fergie was trying to figure things out post-Beckham and, yeah, drama times. Yeah, drama um, times. That Was that two years? That was two years yeah, ago. Yeah, it was about two the, seasons, yeah. yeah you, you know, know early Champions League yeah. exit and all yeah. that, yeah. I Stress love listening to Man United fans now when they just don't realize what it's like to be a real football fan. You know? get, get real, get real. But this, is, but this is it, though. Like, Welcome like, to be the Tottenham fan. <laughs> but this is it. Looking back at some of those memories, like I always used to joke, yourself and Leighton Baines on the left used to fucking piss me off. Every time we played you guys, you guys were game raisers. And, it, you know, it was one of the thorns in, in, in an otherwise – very, very boisterous Manchester United bush of the 2000s and yeah. 2010. So I guess yeah. tell me about your preparation heading into a Manchester United game. Did you treat it different than another match? You were just talking about your international experience. No, I, I guess no, it's right. 
Yeah, no, you, 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 you're right. You, you think differently. No matter what anybody says, you think differently. And I, it, it's, it's so wrong even when you think of yourself as a player even switching into that mindset. But realistically, it's Man United. You know, you play against the bigger sides, Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, or whoever it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a different mindset. Going to Old Trafford is special. No matter what anybody says, it's, it, it's a special stadium. It's great to, to, to play in it. So it does change your mindset. I think you... I think you're more switched on earlier on in the week. So rather than getting yourself prepared on a Thursday and a Friday, like within the, within the team structure that most teams would do, it, you know, you're working on a team, obviously on a structure towards the Saturday game, if you're looking at it from a Monday point of view. But you only generally start to seriously switch on on a Thursday and a Friday when you're doing proper teamwork. You're playing against Man United, you've got to get your head right. It's almost, as, almost as soon as that game finishes on the Saturday or whenever you've played that last game, it's Man United coming around. And it does, your mindset whole changes. Uh, you know, I, I've, had, I've had games where we've gone to Old Trafford and played well and lost. We've gone to Old Trafford and played horrendously and lost badly. You know, we, we've had it all. I've had it all. And when certainly with Man United, when you're playing at Old Trafford, it's different than playing, obviously, as, as a, home tide, a home side against Man United because you can be invigorated by the home support. And no matter what anyone says, it's so much easier for players now, by the way, playing with, with empty stadiums. It's so much easier. No matter what anybody says, it's just... It's, that's why I think you're seeing so many goals. It's almost like a training ground practice match every single Premier League match now because players can just try things, things that they'd never do. So when you go into Old Trafford, if you make a mistake against, you mentioned some of those players against Beckham, Scholes, whatever it would be, you punish quickly. And 1-0 can become 3-4-0 and four nil at the blink of an eye. It seemed in a game. I remember playing some games like that. I remember being at Old Trafford once. I was at Sunderland and we were 1-0 up, I think about the 80th, fifth minute certainly the, the very last stages of the game 1-0 up and we felt we played really well good defensively we felt we were carrying a threat going forward and I think Beckham scored one I think that got the equaliser maybe even Scholes one of the two got the equaliser whatever it was and they turned 1-0 down into 2-1 injury time a winner for Man United so quickly it was a blink of an eye and it was two goals and that's what I'm saying it's you switch off, you think you've got a result and they can punish you badly. That's what the best sides always do, of course. But Man United had that way about them where mentally it was, it was, it was a grind until the 91st or 97th minute, whatever it was. They, they made you. If you were going to beat them, you had to earn that win, badly had to earn that win. And it was so hard to get wins against them for that reason because of the mentality, mentality that was probably going through that club. The curse of Kilban, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Sorry. The curse of Kilban. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I got one more. I cut out there for a second. I missed the end there. Can I add one more there quick, Anthony? Yeah, go for it, man. Well, it's just more about, about that time period. Like, do you, you guys, uh, the 2004-05 season was, I mean, these guys that are playing right now remind me of you guys back then. And yeah. I know the following year, things obviously didn't work out well in Europe. But talk about that campaign. Like, you guys actually flirted with trying to to do some things that Leicester City did a couple of years ago. So yeah. just talk about that unit and working for David Moyes because, um, you know, he gets stick for his stubbornness, but he's one of my favorite managers of all time. So kind of yeah, just I, running with that team. I mean, I, I, knew, I knew David. I knew from when I was 15 years of age, he was the captain when I first started to, to progress at Preston. He was obviously a player. Then he was my coach. So I, I knew him for a long time and he probably knew what I could do. So I was lucky enough to that he signed me for Everton when he did. Um, but, that that season, that season, we'd come off the back of a poor campaign. I, I'd signed the season before, and things weren't going right. There was there was a talk of a takeover at the club. If the takeover went through, David Moyes would have absolutely lost his job. The, the manager would not have stayed at the club if the takeover went through. But Bill Kenwright managed to keep hold of the club, and he just had belief in David. He he said to him, "Look, we've not got a big budget. We've not got a big squad for this season." But we need to get through this season. We need to, we need to work with what we've got. But if, you, if I think back to the side that we had and the characters that we have, you think about working with what you've got. You know, we had Duncan Ferguson, Kevin Campbell, uh, Alan Stubbs, David Weir, Lee Carsley, Steve Watson, Nigel Martin was our goalkeeper. We had uh, um, some of the strongest characters that I've ever stepped into a dressing room with. So realistically, I think David Moyes' job, for all that he did a great job, I think it was made easy with the characters that he had within that dressing room. So we did, as I said before, we didn't have a big squad. Um, we had, we probably, most games would have, you, you could have picked 
fact, the twelve, uh, the eleven players, probably from fourteen players, it was very, very little for David Moyes to work with, and, and very the, the, the actual starting eleven with. I think that helped us because we had a structure that we worked to, and we had a we had a, a brilliant mindset, and we actually had brilliant footballers that we were maybe underplayed. We had Leon Osman, who came in had a great career at Everton, who was a young, fabulous footballer who who was coming in and starting to make an impression that season as well. And it was just one of those seasons where you look back and you think everything clicked. It was just perfect timing, perfect characters, perfect team, and it was it was a it was a great season. And we we played against the best sides, competed with them, of course, finishing fourth. We finished ahead of, ahead of Liverpool, and then Liverpool went and won the Champions League, so they qualified for the for the Champions League themselves. So it the the they rained on our parade again, didn't they? A little bit, but it was no, it was it was a great season. It was a great those, season. Those scouse bastards. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Anthony. Brother, cheers, it's, Kevin. It's funny. Yeah. A couple of Everton fans have actually messaged me to ask you that question. So Chris, thanks for that, man. <laughs> so so when we finish with the show, we just have a. Couple couple of like kind of quick fire questions that we ask people so um what's your favorite pub in dublin devitz uh tato or king tato i i, I live right beside the tato factory when i was uh, like in dublin and it was fucking amazing uh if you're gonna, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're um if you're gonna play uh, if you're gonna have a five-side tournament from the players you've played with who would be oh, on your team uh roy king roy king absolutely shea given uh, absolutely Oh, bloody hell. Good, good, very good. Um, <laughs> Gravison, Tommy Gravison. Um, wow, I forgot about him. That's uh, a blast from the past. Sorry, yeah, Kevin, sorry. Yeah, he was he was a talent. Yeah, Tommy, Roy. Uh, do I pick myself in that team? If you want to. I'll talk to you, Tommy, buddy. Roy, Tommy, Roy, uh, Shea, uh, myself, and I'll put Robbie Keane up front. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Great team. Uh, go ahead, Carlos. <laughs> I normally ask uh, uh, one question, but I want to ask you like another one just very quick. Robbie Keane or Roy Keane? Pick one. Oh, are you talking talent or what are you think? Roy's the best player I played with. Um, yeah, I, I think he'd probably say himself. He maybe wasn't the most talented player. But mm-hmm. in, my, in my opinion, personal opinion, I think he's the best player that's ever played in the Premier League. I think he would, if I was going to pick a team, one team, Roy Keane would be first pick out of every player that's ever played in the Premier League. Um, honestly, incredible footballer. Uh, his 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 mind to speed up and slow down the game was incredible. Everyone talks that you, you you know, mm. uh, Man United fans everywhere all over the world talk about Paul Scholes. Fantastic, don't get me wrong, brilliant footballer. Mm. But I would pick Roy Keane ahead of Paul Scholes every single day of the week. Every single day of the week, honestly. I, I, I'll pick him too because I'm, or I'm a big fan of Roy Keane. But also, the, the it's just there's many talented players that you see on the pitch. But when you have a talented player and plays with this yeah. and with this, yeah, it's just that the total package. And and to me, yeah. Roy King one one of those. Um, when yeah. you play, uh, pick just uh, your favorite three positions. Um, I mean your favorite three players that that you have played with in your position. Uh, three players that I played alongside. Um, uh, I, I talent wise, I think probably Damien Duff would probably be the most talented player that I that I would have played alongside. Mm-hmm. Incredible talent. Uh Robbie Keane and Wayne Rooney, probably. They'd be movie three I'd maybe I'd look at, yeah. Wow. Not too shabby. Go for it, Chris. I'm yeah. speechless. <laughs> that was actually like my last, last question. So I'll ask that before I ask my typical ones. What was that like working with Wayne? Like the baby. Um, like yeah, you yeah. Saw well, it from Wayne, the start. Wayne, exactly. Seventeen. Wayne, yeah. you know, when it was, it was. It, Wayne was incredible. Honestly, um, a desire to to train and be the best every single day, but also with the talent. It, it, Wayne was. Wayne was. Was it, honestly, he was an animal. He was a beast at sixteen. I've never seen anything like him for pace, for power, for his ability to do things as well that that nobody else could do. Uh, he was. He was. He was a phenomenon, an absolute phenomenon. And, and maybe looking back at it, people have said about him maybe underachieved in his career. How can you underachieve when you become Man United's leading goal scorer, England's leading goal scorer? To, to, to say things like that is crazy. Wayne was honestly absolutely phenomenal. And I think maybe in the latter part of his career, maybe when he was playing at Man United, I think he played that many games. because And, he, and you know what with Wayne? It wasn't just the amount of games that he played. Wayne trained every single day. Like most players... Uh, maybe at the level of Wayne as well, would have always taken a Monday and a Tuesday off just to get the body prepared. Wayne wouldn't have that. Wayne wanted to train every single day and train at 100% every single training session. So 
that was why he went on to have the career he had. But also, he had the natural talent as well. So, yeah, he's, he was a phenomenon. Absolute phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, cheers, cheers. Um, I guess uh, back when you're playing career, your pregame meal, is there any kind of snack that you munched on before a game or anything to kind of get you? You know, I, I never... I, I wasn't really a foodie. Honestly, I wasn't. I, I, I would have eaten the general things that most players would eat. Chicken, Guinness? pastas, all that sort of thing. Guinness, yeah. Not, not after a Friday evening, no. A Friday <laughs> evening for playing a Saturday, you know. Yeah. I used to limit myself. I would always have six hours after my, on my last party Guinness before I was going to play a game. So, yeah. <laughs> six hours? <laughs> Standards. Six hours and two naps. Honestly, yeah. It could have been five sometimes, but no, it was six. What? It was always six. No, no, uh, awesome. no, no food-wise, honestly, I didn't, I, I genuinely didn't, I didn't, I, I was I was lucky. He was saying that you know I I did I obviously I did like my pint of Guinness as well even when I was playing. But I was always a sort of professional. It would have been at the right time. I I I, I used to follow good diets. I used to follow uh, you know an alcohol policy which would absolutely never drink before I was training the day after. Maybe on a Saturday after the game I would have had a couple of beers. Maybe on a Sunday if I had a, if I had a Monday off. But no, I was I was very professional in that one because the game changed and when I came in. Arsene Wenger changed English football in '95, I think it was '96 when he got the job, and that was my era coming into it, where that filtered through English football, and uh, we were then fully professional probably from that age, from from my age at 16 and 17. So I was I was lucky that I, you know that I came into the new age of of, of modern football, so it was good. What's in your headphones before a game? A certain artist or a song or something that gets you hyped? Or, Do you know or? what? I would have always listened to, you know, uh, Anthony would be familiar with it. I would have always listened to all the Irish Rebel music. Always, always listened to that. That's what I brought up. That's what I was brought up with from when I was a kid. Uh, I'd be big into um, Britpop at the time, Oasis, um, Richard Ashcroft, Verve, or anything like that. That yeah. was probably me. I would listen to that, that type of music, yeah. But I am quite free-spirited, so I'd listen to anything, honestly. Right on, right on, and and my last one, superstition. So, is there something like that? Last no, thing? I didn't. I didn't believe anyone that got superstitions. We had one lad. I always remember when I was a kid, sixteen <laughs> at Preston, right? And he used to make the physio come over with a tie up for him, and he used to have to hand him one tie up with his left hand, and then he put it on, and he have to hand the next one with his right hand. He put that on. He'd hand him his boots, and I was <laughs> like, if I ever get myself like that, I'll actually go crazy. So, no, I honestly, I just thought I'm never gonna have any superstitions. Uh, I just do what I do. Try and repeat what you're doing week in, week out, but have no no superstitions. So no, I didn't have them. People have superstitions are crazy. Footballers are crazy. Don't get me wrong, and goalkeepers <laughs> are especially crazy. But no, yeah. I didn't want to have that in my mindset. No. Uh, cheers. Uh, before I hand it on to Anthony, man, this was a dream come true. Like I said, you uh, you guys used to drive me wild on weekends as a supporter, and I'm thank sure you, guys, thank you. I'm sure you guys even drove Anthony Spurs crazy, but those guys used to drive us crazy too back then. We had to steal Michael Carrick from them. Uh, oh, thank yeah. you, thank you. Honestly, cheers. thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thank you. So yeah, man, I really, it's, it's a bucket list for me. So I really appreciate you doing this. Um, Not about I, it. I, I did see on your uh, Insta story last week that you were playing a bit of ball in Ontario. How did that go? Yeah, I've been enjoying. I've been getting a couple of games in here and there. I mentioned before, my back isn't the isn't the best. I, I, it's what I finish with, um, and I did my calf when I played the other day. But it's starting to get a bit cold now, so we're moving on to the indoor season. So I'm going to try and get a few games across the winter time now get some of the indoor games but it was good I enjoy it you know some of the lads out here there's 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 a few lads that would play on our side that are that are English lads that would have had scholarships in the US and a couple of lads met Canadian girls and they've moved up here um up up, up this way so they played at decent levels as well themselves there's one lad that plays on our side a lad that played against us actually played at um I think it was at St Mirren I think he's, he played up in Scotland anyway so you get random players playing the league you know that so it's great you get a decent standard of players and it's it's great just to get a run out here and there so it's nice yeah It'd be kind of crazy, like, going up to a game and looking across and there's fucking Kevin Kilbane. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> most, of, most, of the lads, most of the lads don't have a clue, so he's just quite good to play, you know. It's good. <laughs> they, they brought a banger. So, man, yeah, I, uh, I really appreciate it. It's been amazing. Uh, I, I really appreciate you doing this. And, uh, Anthony, pleasure. Absolute pleasure, honestly. Thank you. And Thanks and for having me. And if you need anything uh, while you're here in Canada, I have a secret stash of uh, Tato and Barry's team, man, so I can hook you up. All right, no, I'm, a li- I'm a Lions team. You never asked me that question. I'm a Lions team, man. There you it's go. It's actually on my list. <laughs> 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 All right, man. Thanks, Mill. Have All a great right. night. Cheers, Cheers, lads. Thanks very Thanks. much. Thank Take it easy. Thanks to Kevin for agreeing to hang out with us. It was a lot of fun. 
I love getting player perspective on what's happening with football. So I appreciate Kevin giving us such in-depth answers to our questions. Thank you to Carlos and Chris for their help as always. Thank you to all our listeners. We really do appreciate all your support. Make sure to give us a follow on the socials at Down the Pub Pod on Instagram at Down the Pub Pod C1 on the Twitter. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. So until next time, stay safe and cheers. You've been listening to the Down the Pub Podcast, recorded in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.